0: Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast, British Murders of course? I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I am by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hi everyone, Stuart here. A slightly different episode today. This is a little bit of a a different style, a different format to the regular show I would have each week. As we are between seasons on here, I've had the opportunity to speak to my guest today, who is Mark Russell, um, a local historian and author of the new book called Checkmate, The Wallace Murder Mystery. Now, this came out Yesterday, I believe. Is that right, Mark? 20th of January?
1: Yeah, that's right, Stuart, yeah.
0: So this is about the Julia Wallace murder mystery case, which happened 90 years ago in 1931. So this is sort of the 90th anniversary coinciding with the book coming out. So it's it's a very sort of well-known and notorious case in the UK, this one. Essentially, William Wallace had a bit of a suspicious message left for him at his local chess club. He arrived not long after the call. When he returned home, his wife, Julia, had been murdered on there. And that's kind of the, there's a lot more to it than that, of course, but that's kind of the overview. So I think, Mark, if we just hand it over to yourself, you know, feel free to to give a brief introduction or if you just want to get straight into the story, I'm excited to hear it.
1: Right, Stuart, yeah. Um, well, on the 19th of January, 1931, Wallace was a 52-year-old insurance man, you know, and he used to visit the chess club in Liverpool City Centre. He hadn't been for a few weeks, you know. His attendance was a bit sporadic, like over the couple of months. And this night, he gets to the chess club at about close to eight, and he finds out that a message had been left for him—a telephone message—and the caller asked him to call on um, the following evening for the twentieth at um, seven thirty at Menlove Gardens East in Liverpool to, you know, for a possible business deal with um, a p- prospective client. So Wallace. The the name, by the way, was R.M. a Funny-sounding name with a Q. He asked a few people in the area. Asked uh, uh, in the chess club, asked if they knew the area and whether there was a Menlove Gardens East. And none of them knew. Like, even though a few of them lived in that area of southern area of Liverpool. Well, anyway, he took the took the message, and you know, duly the next night he went on the on the um, took three trams to the Menlove Gardens area, and he said he didn't know the area, you know. When he got there, he found out there was a Menlove of gardens north, south, and west, but no east. Now he asked a few bystanders, uh, bypassers, and um, a lady at 25 Menlove of gardens west if it was there, and she said no, no, there's no east. And then Wallace, you know, said, "Oh, it's funny that there's no east." Then he he goes round round to uh, Allerton Road. To he wanted to, he said he wanted to cons- um, consult a directory, you know, to find out the address. Now when he walks down Green Lane to Menlove of uh, to Allerton Road. He meets a policeman, PC Sergeant, with a funny name, Sergeant. When he asked if there was a man of Gardens East, the policeman said, No, there's no, such a, there's no such address. And that was about quarter to eight. And people you see were saying that uh, was he establishing his alibi? You know, did Wallace make the phone call the previous night?
0: Yeah, okay.
1: And um, anyway, he, he, wants, he goes to in a local post office, but they haven't got a directory. So he goes to the newsagent's opposite. And looks it up, but the lady there says there's no such place as men Love Gardens East. So then he's like, "Okay, thanks." And he gets the tram back home. And um, when he gets back home, at about quarter to nine, he finds out that he can't get in. You see, the, what the what the practice was in them days was he you used the back the backyard door of a day. And he said that like when he walked down the yard, the natural thing to do was his wife had locked the door after him and bolted, and he'd come in of a night through the front door with the key. Well, he said he couldn't get he couldn't get into through the front. Then he tried round the back again. The backyard door wasn't bolted, but he couldn't get in through the backyard door because he said the key was stuck. Or he couldn't get in. Then he went back round the front. Well, anyway, when he does get entrance to the house, he finds his wife in the front parlour battered to death. What it was was when it came all about it, you know, the idea was by the prosecution and the police was that Wallace sends himself the message and gets down there to the chess club the night before. And makes out, you know, that it's from from a a respective client. But the problem was, you see, right throughout the the police uh, the police investigations and the prosecution in the trial, said that they could find no motive regarding why Wallace would want to kill his wife. Yeah. So there wasn't any marital problems or anything like that. Well, no. Um, a lot of neighbours, you know, testified that like they seemed to be a nice, loving couple, and that. But the funny thing is, Stuart, is that it took, you know, only twenty years ago, it came out to... Although Wallace was 52 at the time, right, his wife was actually 69. Julia was actually 69. And we only find this out, this out 20 years ago through, you know, the previ- uh, an excellent book by James Murphy called it the, uh, the Murder of Julia Wallace. So, you know, uh, people are probably thinking, well, is that a motive that she's 17 years older than I And, mean, you know, he's, she's more like a pensioner and he's got fed up with her than that. But as I said, the police and the prosecution, although the you know, suspected and believed it was Wallace. He couldn't say that was a say there was a definite motive for it. You know.
0: So what was the actual cause of death then? So she's been attacked by someone. She's been beaten. Was was it a case of you know blunt force trauma, or was she strangled, or what was the actual cause?
1: Professor McFall, the uh, pathologist who took, you know, the, uh, the police pathologist said she'd been he hit eleven times with a, with what would be something about a foot long, you know, like an iron bar. Mm-hmm. And the first the first strike was to the left-hand side of her forehead, you know, the, by the meningeal artery. And he said, the pathologist said that that would have been enough to kill her.
0: Yeah, especially at that age as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the thing was, Eve said that the other 10 blows were administered while she was on the floor because they found a halo of blood about 9 inches around, radius around the head on the floor but what defenders of Wallace think Adam Stewart is that it could have been this RM Qualtro who left a phone call people who believe Wallace was like you know it wasn't him the killer, it, it was this other person was the she, she had she had a visitor to the house that night and you know I don't know about where you're from but in Liverpool people use the front parlour rights mainly for guests they lived in the back room you know, where it was like a kitchen range and that. And he said that the front parlor was, you know, solely really for the guests or in the Wallace's case, musical evenings, because Julia played piano and Wallace played the violin. And what what the, uh, those defendants, you know, who believe in Wallace's innocence say that like an unknown caller this night come and she took him into the front parlor and she was leaning over the gas fire, you know, to turn it on. Because when they uh, examined the body, she had a Mac over the Macintosh that Wallace apparently wore that day on his rounds the Tuesday afternoon. But because it turned out fine of the weather, he put his overcoat on to go to a Menloaf Gardens area, you know, in um, the evening, and he left his Macintosh hanging in the hall. But when he looked, he seen parts of the Macintosh burnt, you know, like ashes of it on the floor. And there was, like, corresponding, like, um, burn marks, you know, on her dress, on her skirt, sorry, you know, that matched the rings of the fire, the clays of the flyer. so they think that she was leaning over, right, and whoever killed her, killed her, and she fell on the um, the gas fire, and the killers pulled her away and administered the other ten, 10 blows on the floor, but the funny thing is with it is the, the neighbours next door never heard anything, you think the, because the, the, house, the house in Wolverton Street, you know, the houses there are floorboards, so you think someone administering another 10 blows on the head on the floor would be heard, wouldn't you? I mean, there's a lot of mysteries with it, and that for me has always been one of the most problematic things of it.
0: I mean, I can kind of understand as far as if the first blow was basically the devastating blow, then the the amount of screams, I suppose, is one aspect of it. But like you say, 10 more blows on a hard floor. Is it sort of terraced houses as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, terraced, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you probably would have, you'd have thought anyway heard something. Is there any information as to who this caller actually was then? Was this an unscheduled visit? Did Did William know about this visit or?
1: No, no. The funny thing is, Stuart, because um, Wallace was a prudential agent, you know, for the assurance company, people said to him, well, have you had a message like that before left of it at the club to go, to go to a, you know, a business, possible business? And he said no. But you see, what the caller said was, uh, I'd like to see Mr. Wallace in particular, because, you know, it's him I'd like to see because uh, an endowment policy for his daughter, coming of age, you know, 21, and the idea was was that Wallace would get a good percentage of it, you know, people who believe that, you know, when he's asking all these questions in Alton Road area, the of Gardens area, that he was, like, trying to establish his whereabouts at the time, you know, to give himself a so-called alibi.
0: Right, okay. Because I did find it a little bit suspect that he arrived at the club sort of... 15 20 minutes after the call, that's that's a little bit suspect. In that, because did he go to the club every
1: night? Presumably, was that his no, no, that's the funny thing, Stuart. Um, because it was a club that you know it, it was known, but you look at the from the on on some of the police forces, they got the fixture boards you know on the on the list for for like November to January 30 to 31, and there's quite a few of the attendees that you know. They are quite erratic with their visits. I mean, the last time Wallace went was um, a good few months before. So, you know, the person who's making the phone calls relying on Wallace being there, which he wasn't really a very frequent, you know, visitor.
0: Yeah, and then he happens to arrive on that day, 20 minutes or so after the call, which is a bit suspect. Was he there, was it a specific event on that night that he went or did he just sort of turn up out of the blue randomly? Uh,
1: Well... With it being like, you know, a league, a chess league and that, he'd have like uh, seven, there were seven players, you know, to each like uh, tournament. And now he just uh, he just turned up that night, you know, basically, uh, as I say, his attendance was not that very good anyway. So the person who, if it was another person, Quattro wanting to get him out the house for the night after, um, he was relying on Wallace carrying it out, you know, going even going to the club and whether he'd get the message relayed to him.
0: That is very, very bizarre, because what are the chances? Let's say that this, what's it called, Qualtro is it called? Qualtro, yeah. Qualtrough. Let's say that Qualtro is this third party, just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Wallace hasn't been there for a couple of months. Let's say he's not been since November, and it's January now. Of all the days to pick, he, he happens to ring at the specific day, requesting a meeting the following. So it's as if he knew he was going to be there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's very bizarre.
1: Well the thing is, um as the investigations went on, the police just by chance said, you know, try and find out if there was if we can trace the call, you know. Well in nineteen thirty one it was like virtually non existent that the call could be traced. But ironically, Stuart, they actually traced the call, right? And it was a call box, one six two seven, four hundred yards from Wallace's house. Now he had trouble getting through whoever it was, Qualtro. He had to get put through after about three, two or three operators, you know. But I honestly believe, right, the funny thing about crime and murders, isn't it, The things go wrong. <laughs> and I honestly believe, personally, that the telephone had a chem- uh, mechanical f- failure on it and just happened to be that night that whoever used it, and, you know, the police thought right away, oh, 400 yards from Wallace's house, you know, that made their prosecution case even better. Their investigations did it. Oh, yeah, we're onto the right man here.
0: Right, okay. So do you, how long, sorry, how far from his house is the chess club then?
1: Oh, about two and a half miles. Right. I don't know how familiar I are with Liverpool, but it's in that the Anfield area, you know, about a couple of hundred yards from the football ground, Liverpool's ground, Wolverton Street, you know. And the chess club is in the city centre, North John Street, and I think it's about two and a half miles. Does people think, you see, um, there was always a doubt because with the call being traced, he said that the the call eventually got through at 20 past seven. And if we... Give or take, the message being relayed to the chess club captain and uh, it being dictated to him by the caller. The chess club captain, Samuel Beattie, took all the um, you know the details. He figured out that it'd probably be about three or four minutes. So if if it was Wallace, say he got out, he finished the call at twenty past twenty-four minutes past seven. Uh, several players in the club said that he got to the club about quarter to eight. So that would be like what twenty-one minutes. Now, does people say, like, oh, we wouldn't have got there in the time? The tram took longer. It would have took longer than that. But unfortunately, the police investigations, right, Didn't they didn't try and time if he could have got there. But there was a bus service on in Liverpool at the time, and I think the bus was quite quicker. So people are saying, oh, he could have jumped on a bus and, you know, made it in the time. They said it was a thing at the club, right? A requisite that you, your games had to start by quarter to eight.
0: Right, OK. So I'm just trying to piece together... So there's two basically there's two theories here there's, there's a third party has called and just happens to have called on the same night that Wallace turns up yeah about 20 minutes or so roughly let's say on a good day that's how long it takes to get there from the phone box
1: yeah
0: and considering he's not been there for a couple of months there's a lot of coincidences there so that's obviously theory number 1 theory number 2 is that Wallace has already murdered his wife at this point and he's or I suppose, like you say, he's making his alibi and he murders her the following night. Yeah, And then he just comes straight after. I don't know where I sit with this. Obviously, this is, this is the first time I'm hearing the case, but I'm just trying to piece together what seems logical. I mean, being a third party involved, from what I've heard, seems a little bit far-fetched right. based, on the, based on the information I've got. But obviously, I'm not a policeman. <laughs> and it's the first first
1: time I'm hearing it. So, what I mean, when was the first time you were made aware of this case? Then, uh, 1975, Stuart. I remember being at home, and there was an advert for Granada Television about a, a program coming up, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It was called "Who Killed Julia Wallace?" You know, with a question mark. And I was mesmerised. It was about nine or nine at the time, and I said to me mother, "Like, look at this," and she said, "Oh, she knew, She grew up with the case, Stuart." She was from Anfield. She she was born in a street that was about 200 yards from the phone box, you know, the actual call box and that. And my grandparents, you know, they'd pay Wallace on his rounds. They would see him regularly. And my um, great aunt, who lived, my granddad and grandmother lived with at the time, uh, she was obsessed with the case. She went to the trial of Wallace, actually, and, um, you know, she was really obsessed with the case. But as I say, yeah, this program coming up, you know, it, it said this Who Killed Julie Wallace, and I was mesmerised by it. And I was even more interested when my mother said, like, it happened just up, the, you know, not far away. Because at that time, we lived in an area just outside of Anfield, and um, <laughs> we watched it right when it was aired. And my parents said, oh, we'll go up there to Wolverton Street the, night, you know, the following night <laughs> to see the house and that. And it was quite dark and sinister looking the streets. And I, I know a few people who've lived there have said, it all seemed like a strange street, to be honest. But um,
0: yeah. I think there's something quite endearing, might not be the right word, but when there's a true crime case that's happened so close to where you are and you know the streets and you know the area, I think there's something that does make it more fascinating than something that that you can't relate to as much. I mean, so... (sighs) What happened with William then? He got arrested, right? Is that what happened? He was charged for this.
1: Yeah, about thirteen days after you know the murder, he was finally charged with it. You know, and um, he ended up going to committal proceedings. You know, for for possible trial, and he ended up sending him to trial on um, in April, the spring of charges, in uh, 22nd of April, nineteen thirty one. And during the trial, um, you know, it was a four day trial, quite short in them <laughs> days. All the evidence came about. And to be honest, you, there was nothing exactly that could nail into it. You know, it was all circumstantial evidence. Now circumstantial evidence can be good. But did you ju- and you know, on a Saturday was the jury found him guilty. And even the judge, apparently, you know, when he said guilty, he looked round because he was he was like sort of directing him to he thought that the you know, the case hadn't been made basically and he thought that like the evidence it hadn't been proved. But anyway, um, he gets found guilty, and then um, the death sentence set, set for the 12th of May. That's a quick turnaround. It, it is, isn't it? He ends up putting appealing, you know, and it didn't look very good because, you know, it was basically saying that the jury made a mistake because what they were trying to get for, although they had 10 points regarding the case, their main was, was that the, the guilty verdict wasn't, like, justified but on the weight of the evidence. So he ends up going down to the court's the law courts in London, you know, now the Royal Courts of Justice, after a two day hearing on the 18th and 19th of May, he gets cleared. He gets his, his, his uh, verdict, the verdict gets quashed, you know. So he ended up getting away.
0: And how did that affect him as far as in the community then? Were people wary of him?
1: It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, I know my grandparents used to say he was a very, like, sort of, you know, taciturn, quiet man. And I've heard several people at the time thought he was quite arrogant, you know, like, you know, because he's into chess and he was, uh, you know, he's a bit of a, le- he lectured in chemistry for a short while at Liverpool Technical College for about five years in the 1920s. So people thought right away that, you know, he's odd because he's into chess, <laughs> you know, typecasting people and, oh, you know, all the moves of the, like, the call and all that and the, and the chess connection oh he, he's been there uh, you know thinking it thinking it through his mind and that but um yeah i know my parents said that he seemed very quiet i mean my granddad was convinced of his innocence but my, my great who used to pay him she said oh no he's i think he's guilty people are funny aren't they the, you know the fickle the public because <laughs> during the case like they were all making out that oh yeah he's like you know he's a philanderer he's got a he's got a secret woman somewhere I mean, like, he had he had a healthy bank account, so there was no reason for him to kill her from the insurance side of it. You know, she had £90 in the bank and was insured for £20, which is a substantial bit then, but he had his own bank account with £152 in But, you know, a lot of people sure in the case, oh, he's guilty, he's guilty. But, you know, the minute he was uh, found guilty, the public then starts, starts, you know, sympathy vote going, oh, now I'm not sure. But when he got found not guilty, you know, sorry, when it was quashed, a verdict from the court of um, the law courts in London, he came back to Liverpool, and his uh, solicitor Hector Monroe said to him, "I wouldn't advise, I wouldn't advise moving back into the area, you know, the house." Well, Wallace did for a couple of months, but he was subjected to all kinds of hostility and vitriol, you know, on his rounds. So he ended up uh, taking a few libel cases out against magazines and papers and that that you know uh, libelled him. And he, with the with the proceeds, he ended up buying a a bungalow in across the water in a whirl opposite Liverpool, you know, in Bromborough. And he lived there. For, but when he was going back to the chess club, he was completely shunned in there. You know, the, the fellow members of the club obviously thought he was guilty of it.
0: I think that's understandable, especially when there's such a massive cloud over what actually happened. I like what you said there about, you know, because he's a chess player and he's always thinking... Six, seven, eight moves ahead. Therefore, did he have the brain to think? Well, if I'm going to do this tomorrow, then I need to make this call now. Then I'll go to the club after, and then I'll come back and go to somewhere else that doesn't exist. Yeah. If he's a smart guy and he's used to strategy and planning ahead, that kind of makes sense to me.
1: You know, because he's a collection agent, and that mm-hmm. he'd, he'd had influenza the previous week, so the money he had in the house. I think he made £14, pound, but he paid £10 pound in sickness benefits. So he had £4 pound in the house. Now, that was gone from the cash box in the back back room, you know. But upstairs, there was £4 pounds in a jar and that hadn't been taken. So, And also, you know, the um, the crime scene in the front parlour would not suggest that it was a burglary gone wrong because, you know, as I was saying before, whoever killed her, she was hit as she was leaning over the gas fire and she he was pulled away. But people say, oh... He could have gone on the Monday night and killed Julia, and without all of Palaver of sending him a phone call, and, that. and the, the argument here is that, that like nobody'd have the most money in the house after collecting on a Tuesday afternoon as well. But it ended up only being four pounds in the house. Now some weeks he'd, you know, did have a monthly week which should be like substantial. It could be eighty to a hundred pound, you know, maybe even more on occasions. But that had been a, to, uh, the week before. So you know the idea that it was a burglary. But the police were like, no. The thing is, the money that the, the cash box that the money had been taken from had been placed back on the shelf, 7 foot 2 high. And uh, Hubert Moore, the detective superintendent, said a thief wouldn't do that. He wouldn't take the money and put it back, you know, the cash box back. So people, you know, presume that it was Wallace done all these things before. it. But um, he, he ended up um, dying less than two years after the, after the killing, Wallace.
0: What did he die of?
1: Uremia, you know, urinary problem, and pyelonephritis. With he had a kidney removed in the uh, in 1907 when he came back. He he went to uh, India and Shanghai, you know. as a, uh he worked like in, for Whiteaway Laidlaw and Company, which were outfitters to the colonial empire of Britain at the time. And um, his brother Joseph was in the, in the Far East, and he advised Wallace. Joseph was Wallace's younger brother, you know, possibly go over there. But he had weak and kidney problems, you know, so he had his left kidney removed when he came back to... He was in he was in India for about three years, and then he was in two years, and then uh, he went to Shanghai in China for two years in 1905, but he came back in 1907. Then he went to... Um, he worked in Manchester for a bit, and then um, he, he ended up moving to Yorkshire, you know, um, Harrogate, and it was there that he met Julia in 1911. She was from Harrogate, you know. Uh, she was from, uh, sorry, East Halsey in, in North Allerton, Yorkshire, And they ended up courtship for three years in 1911. Then they were married in 1914, and then they came to Liverpool in 1915. So they'd been married like 16 years, well, 16, nearly 17 years yet when, you know, she died. But, you know, on a statement, Wallace says, uh, my wife, you know, believed to be whatever. I think he says 50, 53 or 54. But, you know, there's people like, would he know his wife was 17 years older than him? Uh, You'd think so. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Especially as your age, you know, as you're saying when you're getting older than that.
0: Yeah. That's quite a substantial age difference as well. It's not like he's twenty and she's thirty seven. Right. Yeah. It's a significant gap and it's towards the later ages of life, I suppose, which is quite a morbid way to look at it. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's very,
1: very suspicious. Well, when they asked him a statement to him, Stuart, the, the police, you know, uh, have you got any suspicion of anyone, you know, who might have come and done it? He said no. And then people say the uh, Detective Inspector, uh, detective Herbert Gold, one of the other policemen, Wallace said he was asked to name people who might, you know, knock at the house to be admitted by Julia. And he gave a list of people. And then he starts touting this young man who worked for, who covered for Wallace when Wallace was ill about two years previous, Richard Gordon Parry he done a few, like he collected for him on his rounds and Wallace named him and another fellow by the name of Joseph Marsden. You know, it could have been either of them but they looked up there, you know, they they looked at their, they they had alibis on the night of the killing. Marsden was in bed with flu, you know, there was a flu epidemic at the time in Liverpool in 1931 in January and Parry he was, he was in a in a house, you know, in Clubmore area from half five till half eight. Now, they said that the, when he asked the pathologist, when do you think the murder happened? At first, he said about four hours before he arrived, eh, two hours before his arrival. Now, he arrived at 10 to 10, McFall. So that would make it, make it eight o'clock. But he was quite inconsistent with his evidence. You know, the professor, like, considering he was a pathologist. And then he said, no, it was about six o'clock. Now, several things. It's very convoluted, but... There was a newspaper delivered, and a milk boy delivered the milk, and he said on the night in question, you know, the night of the murder, he called at about between half six, uh, half six and quarter seven, and he actually knocked at the door, left the milk, and went to the door next door to put their milk in. And when he came back, Julia passed him the can and said, run along home, it's a cold night. So that was the last time anyone seen Julia, apart from either Wallace or the killer, or Wallace if he was the killer. So it pushed the time short, you know, whether... The police carried out tram tests, you know, to signify if uh, Wallace could get from the tram stop where he went. You see, he had to take three trams to get to the uh, Menlove Gardens area. Okay. So the police, when he found out that it was a given time, you know, that he was on the second tram, he kept asking the um, conductor, like, I want Menlove Gardens East. And then Thomas Phillips, the conductor, would be going around collecting fares. You won't forget, Mr. Wright, I want Menlove Gardens East. And then he said it again, and he said, yeah, I'll tell you. And he told him to get off of Penny Lane, right? And um, then he said that he was a stranger in the area, you know, when he got to Menlove Gardens. But he actually wasn't, because he worked for the Prudential. His his boss, Joseph Crewe, he actually lived not far from there. So people are like, he does know the area he's making out. He hasn't looked at, you know, he doesn't know the area.
0: So that adds further to the fact that he knows there's not an east, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly in my eyes. So he, he's, he's essentially pre-scoped the area, which adds to the theory that he has planned this potentially, if it is him yeah. or was him, that he's planned it way in advance.
1: And also, you know, people say, well, if it was an unknown, if it wasn't Wallace, another person, it wouldn't make sense to use a place that doesn't exist and address. He could have looked it up in a directory. You know, and people asked him that. He said, well, didn't you think of looking it up in a directory? You're, you're a prudential agent. You all get, although is." His area was confined to Club More and, and Anfield area, Wallace. People said, like, Qualtrough, if it wasn't Wallace, was taking a chance that Wallace wouldn't look the address up and go, ah, it doesn't exist. You know, you deem it suspicious.
0: And that would be the logical step, wouldn't it? If someone said, I want to meet you at this place, if it wasn't familiar, you would look it up, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Not even to make sure it exists, you would kind of assume it exists. Yeah. Just to see where you're going, I suppose.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, we Google we, we Google it now, don't we? If you have to go somewhere, you know, see how far somewhere is, or that you're not you're not sure of. And you see, people say that this is totally against Wallace's character because in, in the um, trial, the prosecuting counsel said to him, didn't you think of looking the address up? He said, no, I never thought of it. Now, he was always like, what's the word? Precise Wallace in everything he'd done. It seems out of character that he wouldn't look it up. And you see, what the point is there, Stuart, is people said, well, he, having a non-existence address meant that he could go around asking people, right, and, you know, uh, reinforcing his alibi that like people would remember him.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Again, if that's foresight, then that's ridiculously smart in theory. Yeah. But obviously there's, there's a fair few holes left in there as well. What other circumstantial evidence was there aside from sort of the, the phone box and that, that kind of stuff?
1: Do you know, there wasn't really. I mean... So they didn't have much to go on, really? There isn't. I mean, a lot of people say to... The evidence, right, can prove one way or the other. But the funny thing is about Stewart is that when he's taken the second tram on Smithdown Road, you know where I told you he kept asking the um, conductor. Yeah. His sister-in-law lived not far off Ullet Road, which is runs, par- runs you know, parallel uh, at an angle from Smithdown Road. So he did know that. He did know it as far as up to, men, uh, up to Penny Lane. So there's no reason for him to keep asking. You know, that's circumstantial evidence, isn't it? That you can't, you know, we can't hang him for it. I've always said that I believe him guilty, but you can't hang him on it. And also, you know, the police, when Wallace came back that night and, you know, he went to the Anfield police station at 12 o'clock, they examined him and he didn't have any blood on him, nor on his hands, his clothing, or his boots, or anything, which is another, you know, another point probably in favour of his innocence. But, um, yeah, most of it was circumstantial, you see. So, you know, the police said, well, it can't be proved that a man, can send himself a message from the thing, you know. I think, again, that asking the conductor on the tram, like you say, is likely reinforcing that alibi, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, he's saying to one of them, thank you, I'm a stranger around here, as he got off the second coach, which proved that he wasn't. He wasn't a stranger.
0: It's a strange thing to say as well, isn't it? I it suppose. is.
1: And he, he, what people said, and I know this from my grandparents, that he wasn't very talkative, but that night he couldn't shut up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like nervous chat. Yeah, well, the policeman who's the policeman sergeant who said he, you know, asked him where he was. He said in his statements, PC sergeant says that um, he seemed very excited and he stammered a little. Now, you know, you can't hang him on that, but yeah, he was, you know, several things didn't add up. And the prosecution's case was there's no direct evidence, but when all these things are put together, they fit like a jigsaw. Like, you know, when he was going into the house through the back the second time his neighbours next door, the Johnsons happen to be walking out the house at quarter to nine and he said, I've been, have you heard anything unusual? And I said, no, why, what's happened? He said, I've been trying to get in the front and the back and I can't get in and he says, "Julie won't be out, She, you know, she had, she's got a terrible cold which at uh, nine o'clock at night you wouldn't expect her to be out but now when he walked up to the door, he opened the backyard, uh, the back kitchen door into the house and he said, it opens now, you know, like, and they asked the Johnsons, did he put a key in and they said No, now that is a big. To me, that's damaging to Wallace because you know. Yeah.
0: So had he he tried it once and then gone around the front and then miraculously when it went around the back again it was open. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Normally it was dead bolted though, right? You said that. Yeah. It doesn't look good for
1: Mr. Wallace in my eyes. <laughs> no. Well, I, do you know what, uh, Stuart? I prefer it right when people don't know about the case because a lot of people you see read books and. Uh, influence one way or the other which is fine but i know like relatives of mine my sister-in-law and that she knows the case but she's never read it and she's been reading mine and she's reading it like you know i try you know i've tried to be fair in the book impartial i've come to my conclusions at the end but i've tried to be reported as impartially as i can and you know give favors to wallace and give points against him where i think you know it doesn't look too good on him. but um yeah, I prefer people who, like, you know, don't know the case and you come to it with an open mind.
0: Yeah. I think, like I say, when I got the the message off your, off your publisher that I wanted to speak to you and he mentioned the case, now I hadn't heard of it. Right. But I thought, intentionally, I'm not going to investigate it too much. I got the brief overview just because for the intro of this, I thought it'd be good just to give a brief summary. Obviously, it's a lot more detailed than that. But that's why I purposefully, I just wanted you to tell me the story so that I could hear it for the first time and then, you know, ask you the relevant questions, poke my own holes in it, as it were. But, I mean, how did the actual book project come about? Is this your first book?
1: Yeah. I've been working on it about 10 or 15 years, to be honest. And, um, you know, me publishing Mango, a couple of years ago, I sent to me, you know, asked, you know, uh, and Adam, me editor, said, yeah, send, you know, send... I liked, you know, a, a sample chapter. And then, you know, he just said, we'll go from there, yeah? And i quite pleased that, you know, because it was, you know, the old story, your writer-publishers need, you know, rejections, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And, but it was great that Adam, like, you know, and Mango decided to take me up on it. And I'm quite pleased with the book. Like, they've done a, m- a tremendous job, Adam. And me, uh, indexer, David Green, done a great job on it.
0: And I was reading about how you did all your research. So you were granted access to a lot of sort of police files and records from local stations. Were people quite willing to, to give up this information to you?
1: Well, about 12, 15 years ago, I remember, no, it was a bit longer than about 15, yeah, but about 2006, I remember asking the Merseyside Police and he, he said to me, it'll cost £2,000. I went, well, no, I'll leave that. But within a couple of years, a year of that, he granted them, you know, he said, no, you can have a look at them. So they were fantastic, Keith McNichol at Merseyside Police, you know, and if managed to photograph the whole files and that. I, I mean, some of these parts that have been missing, you know, obviously neglect down the years and that. but I've copied them and then I went down to Kew in about 2011. You know, the the National Archives in Kew and copied the files there and they were great. Yeah, and the modern incarnation of Wallace's solicitors, Hill Dickinson, let me view their records, you know. So, yeah, I was given uh, good cooperation on it.
0: And so have you, did you work with anyone as far as, Basically, you wrote the whole thing and then you've just had it structured by Mango as far as getting it ready for publishing, but you've done all the writing yourself, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, okay. No, it's good. It's it, it's really exciting project. Like I say, it's a fascinating case, Yeah, the first time I've heard about it. So it's published with Mango Books and... There's the website there where you can purchase it from. Is it the, is that the only place you can purchase the book?
1: Is that right? Uh, I think it's going to be end up being on Amazon and Book Depository, Stuart. You know, but at the moment it's Mango. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I'll put a link for the book in the show notes of this episode. I'll put some uh, details in about yourself as well. But that's a really interesting case, and um, you know, I'm glad you took the time to come and speak to me. You're welcome. Steve. A few closing questions, really. I, I used to have an old podcast for a bit of a reference. That was like an interview style. So, you know, interviewing people, it's not foreign to me, luckily. Um, <laughs> but I, I used to have a few closer questions, which I asked every single guest I had on. So if I'd, I'll just run through them. The first one would be, what adv- now you're a published author, what advice would you give to anyone who is aspiring to be an author, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, just to try and get into the game, what advice would you give?
1: Um... Do something you really want to, you know, write about. And basically don't give up don't give up hope, you know. And also probably something, you know, that's more unusual that you you know. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I've got a publisher that's helped me with the uh, Mango, because the amount of Wallace books in recent years has like escalated, you know. But uh yeah, I'd probably say, you know, don't give up, just keep going. I know it can be hard, like you know, when as I said, and like a bit like frustrating when you don't get, you know, when you get persistent rejections. But I was forcing us enough where Mango, you know, Said Adam said, yeah, we'll take the book. So, yeah, don't give up. That's
0: good advice. Um, Is there anything you know now that you wish you would have known when you started on this journey? Bear in mind, it's been over a decade since you started. Is there anything you wish you would have known then that you would have done differently or anything?
1: Uh, It's funny you're saying that because I kept, I think a lot of it, Stuart, was, you know, during the researching and writing of it, it got to a point, right, where I had to have a cut-off point. And <laughs> um, I suppose um, you can always want more to know. It? You see, it's funny you're saying that because I suppose this is with all of us, but I noticed one thing I wished. I wish I would have discussed it more with my grandparents and that, you know, when I was younger, but you don't really when you're a kid, do you?
0: No, you don't, no.
1: But y- your point is, um,
0: no, I don't think so would you change any of the process that you've had over the last 15 years? Is there anything you would have changed? Not necessarily something you would have known, but maybe approach something differently?
1: I don't think so, no.
0: That's fine. It's a similar question to the second one, to be fair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a, you, you, covered, you covered it in that anyway. Um, the closing question i finish on is, and it might not be relevant, do you have a motto that you live by or a mantra or anything like that?
1: Well, yeah, it's it's how ironic it this year, Stuart, because my family motto, Russell, is Que Sera, sera And me dad was a massive daughter, fan.
0: <laughs>
1: and then I found out that the name Wolverson, you know, the streets, Wolverson. Mm-hmm. The motto for that name is Que Sera, sera. Wow. So I'd probably say that that would have to be me motto now.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. I think it's especially when you're researching stuff like this and trying to get, access to archives and you're going to get pushed back trying to become an author like you say you, you've been quite fortunate but people are going to get pushed back and it will put people off but you just have to think what whatever's going to happen is going to happen and eventually if you keep if you're dedicated and you love what you do and you keep trying you'll get there eventually so
1: yeah good
0: advice you'll learn from that experience which is the best thing but but yeah i really appreciate your time and telling the story and um hopefully it's uh something that my listeners will have enjoyed as well because i know i have you're welcome Stuart. cool so yeah so that's checkmate the uh, the julia wallace uh, the wallace murder mystery should i say yep. available at mango books and i will link that in the show notes but thanks for your time mark
1: you're welcome Stuart. pleasure to be on thank you buddy
0: that was the story of julia wallace a mystery unsolved case from 1931 in Liverpool, England, as told by Mark Russell, author of the new book Checkmate. The Wallace murder mystery. That was a little bit of a different episode to the normal format of the show. I've been working on season two, which will be coming in the next week or two, and it's just going to carry on the same as season one with a new episode each week and 10 episodes in total. As usual, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. If you want to support the show, please visit the Patreon, which is just British Murders, or you can make a one-off donation at buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders. The links for both of those will be in the show notes, as will be the link to purchase Mark's book. But for now, and until next season, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.